starting in verse 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, uh, that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the tricks or the decease of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole, the entire armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stands. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist, and here comes the armor, with the, some translations say the belt or, of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shot or put on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you're able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, taking the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all manner of prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end or purpose, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Amen. It's a mouthful, isn't it? But it is the, it is the provision that God has given us to not just withstand in the spiritual warfare that we're in, but to be victorious. God's will is not that you survive. God's will is not that you just make it to heaven. God, otherwise, we wouldn't be here. God's will is that we overcome, that we are more than conquerors through Christ. Jesus, Bible says, He always leads us in triumph through Christ Jesus. So God's goal for our lives, for your life, for this church, is that we be overcomers, not just overcome Satan, but also go take back from him some of the, some of, some of the conquests that he's made. We're here to deliver people, to deliver him people from the snare of the enemy. That's why Jesus came to begin with. We are his body, and we are here to accomplish his works, and that is his works, is to rescue people and deliver people, but it's hard to rescue and deliver deliver people when you need to be rescued and delivered yourself. And so this armor is the provision, part of the provision, that God has given to you and me in the church that we may be able to be successful and overcome Satan. So we've seen that we are all in a spiritual warfare. We started with that. The next thing we saw is who the combatants are in this warfare. We saw it's God on the one hand and it's Satan on the other hand and his principalities and powers. Those are spiritual beings that work for him, that serve him. Those are the fallen angels, one-third of the angels that fell in the great rebellion and they serve him as their master. And so the first thing we learn here about who your enemy is is it's no one wearing flesh and blood. So part of his deceit is to get you to fight the wrong enemy. So he's trying to get husbands to see their wives as their enemy, wives to see husbands as their enemy. He's trying to get people within families to see one another. But the Bible tells us, and the, the Bible's true, right? Okay. The Bible tells us that flesh and blood is not your enemy. Say, it sure feels like it. Well, it may be that some spirit's using them, but the devil's deceit is to get you to fight the wrong enemy. Remember, this is armor for warfare. And the weapon that we have is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God to, to tear down strongholds. It is the power of God. Our enemy's weapon is deceit. We've talked about that. So when we, when we yield to him, to his devices, we're empowering him to destroy our lives and destroy the lives of other people through us. But we don't have to do that. And that's why we're renewing our mind to what God says about this spiritual warfare. 
Then the next thing we saw is that, that this armor is nothing more, and I've seen messages and seen even demonstrations of people, you know, getting up in the morning and you put on your belt of truth and you put on your breastplate of salvation and you put on your helmet. And those are nice little things to remind us. But literally what this means is putting God on. And you say, well, how can I put God on? Because you're His child. If you're born again, you are His child. We've talked about this before. The way you got born again is the same way you got born the first time. Your parents' nature was birthed into your flesh through your DNA. We all understand that? In the same point, when you came to Christ, you were born again a second time. That word again in Greek means not only a second time, but it also means from above. So your second birth is not your body. Your second birth is a rebirth of your spirit being. And this birth now has the genetic structure of your spiritual father, who is God. You literally are his child, spiritually. Therefore, you literally have his genes, his genetic structure. Didn't Jesus say, my peace I give you? Doesn't the Bible say in, in Romans 5, 5, that the, the, the love of God, God's love, has been poured out in our hearts, our spirits, by the Holy Spirit? God has put His nature in you because you are His child. He didn't just drop it in you. When He birthed Himself in you, His nature came along with Him. Just like your parents' nature came along with you. So when we're acting ungodly, we are literally acting against our nature, which is why Paul says, and we'll look at this tonight, Paul says, put Christ on. Well, you can't put on something you don't have. You can't put on something you don't have. And so we must have it in order for him to say, put it on. So this is nothing more than just describing different attributes of God which are already built into our inner man that we're just, now we need to do is in the battle, that's when you need to put it on. Because when you put it on, God becomes your armor. So we saw the first piece was truth. So when you're in any kind of battle, what you'll find is human tendency, the tendency of our flesh is to defend ourselves by changing the truth a little bit. It's very popular now. It's called spinning. But that's a 21st century word for lying. And we do that because we're trying to protect ourselves by changing or deflecting the truth. And what we saw is when we do that, we're not putting God's nature on. We're actually working into the enemy's deceit because deceit means spinning the truth. So when we react to something that's happened to us, instead of reacting head-on, directly, openly, sincerely, and honestly, if we do it any other way as the beginning and all the way through, then literally we are playing into the enemy's devices. And then God is not empowered to protect us. It doesn't mean he's mad at us. It doesn't mean he withdraws. When you step into the enemy's camp, don't get surprised if you get beaten up. And so that's why God gives us this instruction. Walk in truth. I'm reading a book about character. And he's talking about that character is more than just being honest. That's the beginning of it. But character includes 
everything, and it's really what we're going to talk about tonight, everything being integrated or whole. And so he talks about many leaders fail, not because they're dishonest or unethical, because they don't have certain character traits built into them. And one of those is dealing in truth. Not just being honest, but facing the truth. He has a statement in there which just spun my head around. It's so good. He says, you've got to understand, truth is your friend, not your enemy. And many times we're raised in situations where, where, where well, to face the truth, oh my God, that's the scariest thing, to face the truth. But it's your friend. It may be painful at first, but it is your friend. And the reason it's your friend is God is truth. So when you put truth on, you're stepping into God and His character and nature. When you operate outside of truth, even to a slight degree, you're stepping outside of His nature, and therefore you're stepping into your own territory to defend yourself. And you really aren't, because there are only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. So when you step outside of God's, guess who you step into? And He's your enemy! (laughs) So why would you step into your enemy's kingdom? When His purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. The next thing we looked at was the breastplate of righteousness. We saw that this is a piece of the armor that covers the heart. So we understand now that one of the goals the enemy has is to get at your heart. That's why the Bible says guard your heart with all diligence because out of it flow the issues of life. And we saw that the breastplate of righteousness has two sides to it. One side is, first of all, the most basic thing is it's living right before God. Because if you're not living right before God, it's kind of hard for God to be defending you. Because when you don't live right before God, you step into the enemy's camp. The other side of the armor we saw is you're living right before God, but the enemy's working on you or you're working on yourself to condemn yourself. And we learned how to discern the difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation of the enemy. And then we began to look now down in verse uh, verse, uh, 15, having shot or put on your feet with the, the preparation of the gospel of peace. And we talked about that, that the gospel of peace. What does this mean to put on your feet the gospel of peace? Well, the word, the preparation, means literally a, a, a foundation. It also means a preparedness. And we looked back and said, you know, I've studied this in many different contexts and many different commentators. But then I just stepped back and read the context of what he's talking about here. He's talking about being in a position so you can stand strong in a battle. And we looked at, well, where does peace fit into that? And we, well, let's look at the body, which is what he's talking about here. If there's a problem with your feet, if they hurt, if they're sore, if you're lame somehow, it makes it very hard to stand in a battle. And so the part, the part that peace plays in spiritual warfare is it's what allows you to stand still against the onslaught of the enemy. Because if your feet are not steady under you, either because they're uncomfortable, because they hurt, or they're not at peace, then it's, you're distracted by your feet because they're what you stand strong and steady on. So that's the role that peace plays in this spiritual battle. It's what allows you to be undistracted and focus on your enemy and not be bothered by what's going on with you. So we looked at peace. What does peace mean? And this is, I think, the fourth week we've looked at this. The first time we just looked at what peace means. And I took you back into, into Genesis and showed you that in the Old Testament, the word for peace, of course, is shalom. 
common greeting. It's one of the most commonly used words in the, in the, in, in the Old Testament, but it also has one of the broadest meanings. And when you really study it, what you find out, it means far more than peace. It means, it means being made whole in every area so that if a peace, P-E-I-C-E, is missing, then you don't have peace, P-E-A-C-E. So in the Old Testament, peace means wholeness in every area of your life, spirit, soul, and body. And Jesus died, according to Isaiah 53, to cover all three areas. He bore our own, he's bore our sins in his, in his body. And the chastisement for our peace, the suffering, the mental anguish he went through for our peace. Remember, he's a substitute, Isaiah 53 teaches us. So he took upon himself our sins on his spirit. He bore those for the payment of our sin. The chastisement, the suffering, the anguish he went through for our peace. And then by his stripes on his body, we are physically healed. And I taught you that in the Hebrew language, they don't understand compartmentalizing things. So if you're whole in your spirit and you're whole in your soul, but you're not whole in your body, you're not whole. And shalom means whole. And as I've studied the word in Greek that's used here is irene, it, all the commentaries say that same idea is brought over in this word peace in the New Testament. It has the same meaning. Just as the word soteria, salvation has, when you look at Romans 1, 15 and 16. It is the power of God under salvation. Salvation there means wholeness in every area of your life. It's religion that's chopped it up because it's too good to be true. But I got news for you. God's almost too good to be true, but He is true. So the word here, wholeness, and I, I, I found what I was looking for last time I told you. You know, I, I heard somewhere that this word means to be put back together again. And I, I, I got off on it again today. It was one of those causes. I was back in, in Pastor Michael's office that he's looking at one of his resources. And I found it just before I left. The Greek word is, I, this, pardon me, if you don't care about the Greek word, don't worry about it, but this excites me. The Greek word is irene, which basically means, in the classical Greek, a, 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 an end to war, a cessation of hostility. You know, when they have truces, they call them. That's what this word means. But the verb it's based on, the root of the verb that it's based on, means to put the pieces back together. And somewhere I've read it means to be knit. Now, this is going to be good. To be knit back together. Then we looked at, that's God's nature. Wholeness is God's nature. When God made things to begin with, He didn't make it with things missing. God's nature isn't to make something with pieces missing. And say, you know, go figure out how to do it yourself. When he makes something, he makes it whole. So when he fixes it, he restores it to wholeness because he is whole. And whatever he makes is whole. And his creation in the garden was whole. When Jesus walked on the... See, there's three places in the Bible to look if you want to know what God's plan is. 
The first is when he made it to begin with in the garden. The second place is when he walked on the earth in flesh in Jesus. And the third place is when he remakes it again. All three places, he's whole. All three places, what he makes is whole. And all three places, he brought health. There was no sickness in the garden. There's no sickness in the New Jerusalem. And Jesus removed sickness. So that's the will of God. Wholeness. All right. Then we came over and we talked about different areas where this wholeness applies. And the last time we... For last time we taught, we taught on this, we talked about wholeness in the relationship between God and us. And we went back and looked at what's those verses so common in, in, in this time of year is when the angels appeared to announce Jesus' birth, the gift of God to the earth to bring wholeness. He came to bring wholeness and God's gift is born in that manger and the angels appear and they announce peace, uh, glory to God on the highest and peace on earth, goodwill towards men. They were announcing not peace among men, but peace from God to men. And Jesus is what allows God to be at peace with us because He pays for the cause. See, the Bible teaches us in Romans 5 and then again in Romans 8 that we, while we, we were sinners. We were hostile to God. You may not have thought you were, but you and I walked in an arrogance towards God. We walked in rebellion against God. Why? Because we didn't submit to Him. He's God. We're not, we're not equals. Now, you're His child now, but before you came to you're not You're the creation. We're the creation. He's the creator. And we walked around telling the creator what to do. Dismissing Him. Dismissing Him who owns us. I mean, it's His grace. We're not all grease spots. We're kind of wandering around a little bit tonight, but that's okay. Romans 9 is a, is a very difficult chapter to understand if you don't understand what it's talking about. It's talking about God's restoring Israel, and it's talking about the church's relationship to Israel and all of that. But it's really talking about mercy. Because in there, God's, Paul says, he says, you know, how can you... Because Paul says, the, the Scriptures say... God actually says, I, you know, Rebecca had two sons. They were twins. They were Jacob and Esau. But Esau was the firstborn. Under the law at that time, the firstborn had essentially all the rights of the father. They had all the inheritance, basically. It was called the right of, it was called, literally in the English version, it was called autoprimogenitor. It meant that automatically the first child had the right to the inheritance. And that's what Jacob was trying to get when he was born with his hand on his brother's heel because he was trying to pull his brother back and come out first. But the Bible says that God determined ahead of time that the younger, the older, would serve. The, God reversed that. And the argument there is, how is that fair then that, 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 to do that? And Paul's answer is, who are you? Who are you, the clay, to say to the potter, why'd you make me this way? But the key is in this. Because then he goes on to say, God says, I will have mercy 
on who I want to have mercy on. We've got to always remember that everything we have with God, every privilege we have, every forgiveness we have, the cross and everything that comes from the cross is 100, 1,000% because of God's mercy. And once you've been walking in this for a while, it's easy to begin to slip and to think that somehow, some of what I have with God is because I've been a good doobie. I've been, I've been, I, I, you know, and that's the problem that, jo- that's the problem that, that Jonah had. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, not because he didn't want to obey God. He didn't want to obey God because his concern was those evil Ninevites, if they repent, God might forgive them. And, and listen to me, his attitude was they don't deserve, listen carefully, they don't deserve to be forgiven as if he did. And Paul's getting at the heart of the gospel in chapter 9 that everything God does, the cross is because of his mercy. You've got to understand, everything with God goes through the cross. Not just once, your whole life is through the cross. Now, yes, there's things after the cross. There's the kingdom of God, there's the presence of God, but it's all based on the cross. None of it is based on how faithful you've been. None of it is based on your church attendance. None of it, although we need to do all those things, it's not based on that. It's 100% the cross, His mercy. His mercy. How did I get off on this? Oh, peace. Relationship with God. And that if you are not sure where you stand with God, it's very hard to stand boldly against the enemy. So one of his devices is to keep you continually questioning where you stand with God. That's what Hebrews 3 and 4 is about. Because it takes you back to the first generation that came out of Egypt. And they did not enter into the promised land. Not because God wouldn't let them. They turned away because of their unbelief in what God said He was giving them. And in Hebrews 3 and 4, it warns us by their example not to fall into the same thing. And it says the reason they did is that they said, just like you and me, they had the word of God, the promise of God, but they didn't mix it with faith. In other words, they didn't take it on the faith, simply by trusting what God said. They were based on what they felt and what they saw. And too many Christians are discerning where they are with God by how they feel. I don't feel God's presence today. The Bible doesn't say anything about feeling His presence today. Jesus said, I will never, I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13 says, I will never leave you. Actually, in the Greek, it says three times, I will never, no, never, no, never leave you utterly forsaken or cast down. That's God's word to us. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls on Jesus will not be ashamed or not be disappointed. That's God's word. Just as sure God's word is what he said, let there be light, and there was. Just as much the promise as when God spoke to Abraham, you shall have a son, and to Rebekah, this time when I come back next year, you shall have a son. Just as much as the promise that he believed God for and was therefore attributed righteous, in the same way when we believe God's promise of Jesus and what Jesus did for us, that righteousness is attributed to us, and it's by faith, not by feelings or emotion. 
So we learn to walk out and live this relationship with God. And only when you come to that place are you really standing in peace. Because if you're not at peace with God, you're not at peace with anybody. If you're not at peace with God, you cannot be confident in both. Oh, you can kind of overcome it by your own strength, but it won't last long. But there's a second, there's a second dynamic to peace. It's peace with God, it's this way, but it's also peace with one another. And that's what we're going to begin to look at tonight. In Matthew 5, 9, you don't need to turn there, but it's where, where Jesus is going through the Beatitudes. Blessed are these that do this, and blessed are the pure in heart. Verse 9, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. It's interesting. For they shall be called the sons of God. Why? Because what is God? He's a peacemaker. He's made peace with us. We didn't make peace with Him. He made peace with us. You entered into the peace He made with you, but He initiated. If He doesn't initiate the peace, I don't care what we do. There's no peace with God. And so when we're peacemakers, when when we're walking in peace with one another, when we heal wounds, when we initiate peace with one another then we're acting like our Father God. Why? Because we've seen His nature is peace, wholeness. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and see this now in a little more detail. We're going to spend some time, I want to teach you what peace is. Because what He's telling us to do, we all know. But I think the reason it becomes difficult for us is because we think it's one of the instructions that we're supposed to carry out to be good Christians. You know those things we're supposed to do to be good Christians? You're not supposed to lie. You're supposed to do certain things. You know, like The problem is, if you're doing them because you're supposed to do them, you're doing them in your strength. But when you do them because you understand, because your mind's been renewed to understand who you are, and all you've got to do is act like who you are, it becomes much easier. You'll find the power is there to do something. Because can, we can all act like Christians for a while. But then that certain person comes across your path at just the wrong time and says just the wrong thing. And your good intentions blow up in smoke. And you say things that you haven't said in a long time. And you may even do some things you haven't done in a long time. And then you've got to go back and repent and you feel terrible. You say, because you determined you'd never do it. And that's what the law was all about. The more you determined to, to obey the law, the more you disobeyed it. That's what Romans chapter 7 is about, starting in verse 14. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, we've studied some of this last year on Wednesday mor- uh, Sunday mornings, but we're going to go back over this because my eyes began to open to this. Now, in, in chapter 1, of course, G- Paul, and we're studying in Ephesians chapter 6. Remember, it starts out finally. Well, this is what the fi- comes before the finally. Chapter 1, of course, talks about what God, who God's made us to be, all the things God's done for us. And then chapter 2 begins to talk about them some more. We're going to pick up in verse, um, in verse 6. And, and he's, he's talking about you were dead in your sins and transgressions. And chapter, verse 6 says, And he's raised us up together. He's raised us up together. He didn't raise us up individually. He's raised us up together. Whether you realize it or not, 
We're in this together. We're in Him together. Your toes and your fingers are in you together. Your heart, your spleen, your kidneys, your lungs, they're in you together. They're part of who you are. And since we are the body of Christ, we're not individual bodies of Christ. We are different parts of one body. Now remember we're talking about peace. And the word peace means to be rightly connected together. I get, I get this image of a, of a puzzle. Ever come to a place, or maybe it's you know, vacation or somewhere, and you know, you've seen a, a pieces of a pu- these thousand-piece puzzles, you know? The, the pieces are all laid out on a card table, and you go by and you look at this one, and you go, eh, I don't go there. You, know, you go around looking at this one, you know, and you just, you just I have to find, I know, I know I can find that piece. But, but, if you, if, 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 but it, that piece only has one place it fits. I want, oh, this is good. When all the pieces get in the right spot, there's an image they project, isn't there? When all of these pieces get in the right spot, there's an image we project. And it is the image of Christ. So peace means the pieces being in the right spot, in right relationship with one another. Aye, that'll preach right there. And being raised up together, he made us to sit, oh, there it is again, together. Do you know how hard it is to get Christians to sit together? If you could look the way I'm looking, all these blue chairs sitting between one another. I understand I'm just like you. I come into a room and I might sit down and, you know, bless you, good to see you tonight. You go into other parts of the world and they get right up next to each other because they, they know they need each other. About years ago, down in college, the, the, there was a big blackout in the Northeast. And I think it was like 64, 65. And there was a, a, but there were people, that, but it hit around rush hour in New York. You can just imagine people that got into the elevator on the 84th floor of the Empire State Building, assuming that in about 25 seconds they'd be out. So they're in there, and they're not even looking at anybody next to them. They're just like this, eyes straight ahead. I mean, I've worked in those buildings. Nobody talks, nobody looks, nobody hardly breathes. <laughs> just ignore anybody else is there. Zoom, doors open, and we just kind of all walk out. Of course, we're all aware of each other. We just don't want to acknowledge it. They were in there, instead of 25 seconds, about 12 hours. They didn't stand like this the whole 12 hours. When they came out, they had a relationship with one another because they went through it together. Maybe the problem is we haven't had to go through enough together so that because we've been able to go through things separately. But that time may be coming. All right, let's see if we can go on here. 
to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his graces and kindness towards us. For our grace you have been saved through faith, and that not yourself is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ. Now look, verse 6 says we've been sit together in Christ. Verse 10 says we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. And those are not individual works. Those are His works done through us together. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay. Therefore, as a result of we've been created together in Him, remember that you were once Gentiles who were called the uncircumcision, which is were called the circum- by what was called the circumcision. In other words, you were, once you were Gentiles, you were outside the covenant of God, and you were called uncircumcised by those that were born inside the covenant of God. That is the Hebrews, the Jews, the, that had the covenant through Abraham. So there's this separation. That's what he's talking about. But now, look at this. In Christ, that's the third time. In Christ, Jesus, you who once were far off have now been brought near. This peace, you Gentiles over here, you Gentile pieces, through the blood of the cross, have now been brought near to fit together with the covenant pieces who've been brought together. Remember what God's about wholeness. To fit together. And how could God do it? Through the blood of the cross. You ready for this? Look at the next verse. For He Himself is our peace. He's the glue that holds the pieces together. He's what makes up the differences between the Gentiles and the Jews. He's what makes the differences between each. He's the the blood of Christ is the glue that holds the pieces together. And when the pieces are together, He is our peace. There's a play on words here. He is our P-E-A-C-E. And He is our wholeness. We're not whole if we're out of place. We're not whole if there's something in us that's out of place. And God not only wants to bring wholeness into our own personal lives, and not only wants to bring wholeness between Himself and us, because that's the foundation of everything. You can't have wholeness in your personal life if you don't have wholeness and peace in your relationship with Him. But you really can't hold wholeness in your personal self if you don't also have wholeness with the other pieces of the body of Christ around you. Because God's view is He sees the whole body, just like you're aware of your whole body. All right, let's go on. He Himself is is our peace who has made both individual pieces one. And He's broken down the middle wall of separation. In other words, He's broken down what divides. This doesn't just apply between Jew and Gentile. If you are in Christ, 
Whatever separates you from anybody else in Christ, he has broken that separation down. Never taught this before. And he is the peace between you. See, we try to reconcile relationships through other means, by coming into agreement, by deciding who's right and who's wrong. Most arguments over who's right and who's wrong. You know, I've read through this and the footnotes. I don't see anything in here about who's right or who's wrong. Do you? And Jesus himself is our peace who has brought together him that's right together with him that's wrong. I don't see that in here. I don't see him talking about between us who's right and wrong. Isn't that amazing? What an oversight. I hope God's listening to this tonight because he might learn something. No, maybe we'll learn something. Maybe God's not quite so concerned about who's right and who's wrong. God's more concerned with how we get along. But see, we try to resolve our relationships with one another. And this is, I've never taught this before out of this. We try, to, we try to resolve our relationships with one another on the basis of deciding who's right or wrong. And we, you know, we can be gracious about that. Brendan, okay, I, you know, I, I know, you know, I, I, I know, you know, you know, all right, you're right. But inside, I'm just giving in. That's not restored. Outwardly, it looks good, sounds good. And I might temporarily feel good towards God. Well, I've forgiven my brother. But forgiveness, isn't, forgiveness is not enough. It's restoration of the relationship. It's the con- reconnection together. It's not, oh, I've got to do this so Jesus doesn't get mad at me. It's restoring a tear in his body. It's restoring a tear in his body. A couple of weeks ago, I didn't realize it, but I had just some little growth up here on my shoulder. And the only way I found out about it is somewhere I nicked it. And I discovered it when I got in the shower and that soapy water hit it and suddenly I was aware that something was there that I didn't realize before. So I get out, dry off, and look in the mirror and here's this little growth that's now been chipped and peeled back and there's open skin underneath it. And all of my attention was now directed towards this. Trying to figure out what it is, what do I've got to do. So I tried to go through the day and every time I moved, my shirt rubbed this thing. So I went home and I, and I put some salve on it and I put a band-aid over it to cover and to protect it. To do what? To cover and protect it because while it was exposed... The, my movement of my body kept rubbing against it and it kept reopening the wound. And as long, this is, a, I mean, you could have, I tried to show, I need to try to see it. You could already see, this little flap of skin was bothering me and annoying. I, I wasn't at peace. I'd roll over the night and it's, oh, it wasn't bad, it was just a sting. It was enough to wake me up and try to protect and sleep differently. So, 
Finally, I said, I better heal, make sure this gets healed. So I covered it with salve, and I put a Band-Aid over it to protect it. And it took about two or three days, and finally it was made whole, and the peace was restored to my body. When there's a rift among us, in the body of Christ, it's a tear. And there's not peace. Not only in us, the parts, but there's not peace in the body. You may discover... See, see, very often things in our life are connected. Strife affects your health. It affects your finances. Because the grace of God, God's grace is offered... But God's not going to pour His grace out when there's a hole in the body through which it's going to flow. And, and so many times, what's wrong in one area is caused by something that's off in another area. So one of the first places to look has to be whether you're walking in love with your brethren. And love doesn't just mean you're not mad at them. If you've got to sit on this side of the room and they got to sit on this side of the room but you're not mad, <laughs> But hope, hope, peace is literally wholeness. And a lack of peace is when there's a tear and there's a separation. Now we're talking about peace as part of the armor. This wholeness in you, wholeness in your relationship with God but a wholeness when your relationship with your brothers and sisters, with the body of Christ, because without that, you're not fully at peace. And if you're not at peace, then you're not fully in a place to, to, to be in a, in, a, in a strong position for this warfare. In fact, if you're in strife, you're over in his camp again. So you've stepped into his camp trying to defend yourself against him. You're putting your armor down just when you're getting attacked. But you don't understand what they did to me. See, that's his, def- his, that's his deception. Remember, I've talked to you before. A dece- what deception is, is to get you to think one thing's the issue when the devil's after something else. It's what a pickpocket does. It's what a con artist does. Con artist doesn't call you on the phone and says, Oh, dear sir, I'd like to bilk you out of your, out of your life savings. So here's my name and address. Would you please send the check and clean out your account and I will send you a nice thank you note. And they don't do that because you wouldn't do that. Instead, they try to tell you they're going to do something for you. Because if you'll begin to listen to them and they'll play on your flesh, they'll play on your greed, they'll play on fear. All of those are of the flesh. They'll play on some carnal thing that's not trusting God. They'll play on that to draw you in, but what they're really after is not what they tell you they're about at all. Well, Satan is the father of lies. He's the father of deception. So he's a master of using... So the very thing he makes you think he's after is not what he's after at all. So when that lovely spouse of yours or your parents or your neighbor or your boss or somebody in your neighbor, whatever it is, they just get under your skin and you just want to 
lay into them and, or just get cold towards them, you're seeing, boy, they're what's robbing me of my peace. That's not what's robbing you of your peace at all. It is a deception of the enemy to get you to put your armor down. To separate so that you become, because what Satan wants to do is to separate us until we're all separate pieces all by ourselves. There's a wonderful video, and I may show it sometime. It's about eight minutes long. And it's, it's, it's of, a, of a, and I may have told you about it before. It's, it's over at a game reserve in Africa. And it's a story about these, these water buffalo that, that come along in a huge herd, the big tall things, the big antlers that go like this. And they come along, and here's a pride of about five or six lion, lionesses. And they're, they're stalking because they're down in the grass like this. And they're moving you know, very stealthily along. And, and the herd sees them, and they panic and start to run. And the lions weren't doing anything until they started to run. Now listen, because Peter says, be aware of Satan who goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And when they start to run, now the lions get bold and go after them, and they pick off one of the babies that couldn't run so fast, because they all left them. And they drag this baby down by the water, and about five or six of them were on there chewing on them. And as they get them down into the water, trying to pull them up out of the water, just at the worst possible moment, an alligator comes up and grabs the other end of it, trying to pull it down into the water. Have anybody seen this? So try to pull it down into, into the water. And, and pretty soon it must have dawned on these water buffalo what's going on, because they start coming back. And they realize what's going on. I think they, they didn't realize the baby was missing. They come back and they see this and they gradually encircle these lions who are chewing on the baby. How this baby survived, I don't know, but he did. Chewing on this baby while the crocodile on one end, or alligator, whichever it is, you've got the lions on the other and, and they circle around. Finally, the lions realize they're now surrounded. And so they, the, the, the crocodile lets go. They pull it out on the shore, and, and, and they're trying to drag it away from this, and they just keep encircling. And once they're encircled, one of the male, males comes forward and flips one of the lions in the air with his antlers. Now the lions are panicked. And so they're trying to figure a way out. So they sneak around the side, and now this herd starts chasing the lions. The lions aren't so bold now. The lions were bold when they got them and could pick off a weak one separate and alone. As long as that baby was in the herd, the lions wouldn't touch them. But their goal was to get the herd to panic and leave the weak ones behind. Do a a, a search in your New Testament of how many times the Bible says all together or together like we just read. Over and over again, the Bible talks about us doing things together, being together. And that's where the peace comes from. So this is what I want you to see. This is what we want to see tonight. That what the enemy's goal is to steal your peace. But it's not something in your pocket or in your purse he takes out of you. It's the connection you have with people around you. I've walked into homes and you can tell there's no peace there. It's not because they lost something. It's because of there's a broke breaks in the relationships with each other and you can feel it in the atmosphere. And so we see here that the right basis, because we're talking about restoring that connection, it's not based on who's right or wrong. It's not based on who wins or who doesn't win. (laughs) 
I heard, I won't tell you who it is, but I heard a well-known preacher share about it. An argument got into his wife, excuse me, an intense discussion. He got into his with his wife. And, and, and finally he said, he said, he looked at me and he says, Dear, you, you know I'm right. She says, yeah, I know you're right, but I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> no, she said, I don't want to be wrong, but I know I'm wrong, but I don't want you to be right. That's what she said. We try to resolve these issues, relationships, on everything other than the basis he's told us. He said, Jesus is our peace. He's what holds us together. He's what bridges this gap. The reason I can lay aside strife that I may be tempted to hold on to with you is because Jesus has forgiven me. And you're no, I'm no better on my own than you are on your own. We are all in this body together because of Jesus and not because one of us is better, stronger, more righteous, less righteous, wiser, or anything about ourselves. He is the glue. He is the peace that holds us together. So if you've got a breach in a relationship, you're not going to have peace and his body is not going to have peace until that breach is restored. But the way that is restored is through him, not through your own efforts. Now you will go have to deal with them and talk to them if you can, but it's going to be through his glue, his love, his grace, his forgiveness of you that you can forgive them. And I've had people say, Lord, I don't, know how, I don't know if I can forgive that person, but I do know I can do it this way. You've forgiven me of much worse. And if you've forgiven me of much worse, how dare I think I can hold on to something against this person? And you all know the parable of the servant that was forgiven of multi-million dollar debt by his master and then tried to hold, throw a servant that owed him money in jail for only owing him you know, a couple hundred dollars. Peace means wholeness. It means a lack of conflict. But you can't have that kind of peace unless we're all properly knitted together.